0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin,
1: I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around a place in this world. Today,
0: I'm the problem, it's me. Partner Liana Witt joins us to talk about individual liability for contraventions of competition law.
2: Over the years, there's been an increasing focus on individual liability, not just on the company. And I don't see that trend. Baiting. I think it's only going to continue. And I think for the very reason that while a company can be penalized, an individual can be imprisoned. And I think it really comes back to that is the ultimate tool that can be used to achieve deterrence.
1: And our title is
0: a line from the Taylor Swift song,
1: Antihero, isn't it? You know it. This is from Taylor's most recent new album, Midnights, which of course was the first album ever to monopolise the top 10 positions in the Billboard Hot 100 when it came out last year. And it's her most recent new album because in
0: 2023, she released a new version of her 2014 album, 1989.
1: I think that's right. That was the fourth album that Taylor has re-recorded because she wants to have control of all her master recordings. And the masters for her first six albums now belong to a private equity firm that's owned by Disney.
0: Yeah, fun fact. She isn't able to use or license those original recordings, but she does have the right to perform and make new recordings of the original songs. And she'll have all the rights in those new recordings.
1: Yeah, it's really an ingenious response to an interesting IP question. And nobody thought she'd actually do it because of all the hassle that would be involved, but she's doing it.
0: Well, another fun fact, she's besties with Alex Morgan, a two-time World Cup winner with the US team, who also likes to challenge the status quo. Alex was at the centre of the equal pay lawsuit against US soccer, which helped bring about their equal pay agreement. Do you think those two plotted all this
1: together? I really want to think so. Taylor did spark a few competition law debates as well, like with a vertical merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation, and then whether that should be broken up as a monopoly.
0: Hmm, A few universities in the US are apparently offering courses in Taylor Swift law.
1: Maybe one day you'll be able to get a whole law degree. (laughs) I'm the problem, JD. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the holy ground? Well, Treasury has released its consultation paper on the merger reforms proposed by the ICCC, and it's put those very much in the context of economic dynamism, as well as the concentrated markets that some parts of the government have been concerned about lately. From banks to beer to baby food? Bingo! And as usual, the paper does a good job setting out the current position, the ACCC's concerns, and also the counter-arguments that have been raised so far.
0: Like that the ACCC may have had trouble in some cases because of its litigation strategy and its theories of harm that don't match commercial realities, and that it's very rarely had to actually intervene in a merger that
1: wasn't notified. That's right. And the paper says that really everything about the merger process is on the table now. But the main things are whether notification and suspension of a deal will be mandatory or voluntary, who makes the initial decision and then how can that be appealed or reviewed, and of course, what test is applied and where the onus of proof is going to sit.
0: So there are a lot of possible combinations there already.
1: There are, and the paper lays out three options to focus the discussion, but it's not ruling out any other combination, including just sticking with what we've got. Mm, Another three up front. Well, let's have them. So option one would be a voluntary formal clearance regime where you can choose to ask the ACCC to look at your deal. And if the ACCC is satisfied that it won't lessen competition, it will formally clear it, and then you're safe and sound, and you can't be challenged by third parties or by the ACCC. And if it's not satisfied? Well, then you can go to the Competition Tribunal for a review, and you might still get that clearance. Or you can go ahead with the merger, and then the ACCC will have to go to the federal court if they want to stop it. So this sounds
0: a bit like what the Dawson Review recommended back in 2003, and what we had for about 10 years until 2017.
1: Yeah, and nobody used that option in those 10 years. But this time, it would be the only option. You wouldn't be able to go for informal clearance anymore. You might still be able to go for authorisation, but that is another variable. So, is
0: this nothing new or everything has changed?
1: Well, call it what you want. Uh-huh. Option two would be a mandatory notification and suspensory regime, where you'd have to notify and suspend any deals above a certain threshold, And the ACCC can say, that's fine, or just say nothing, and you can assume it won't take action after that period. The ACCC can still investigate deals below the thresholds, but either way, if it wants to stop a deal from going through, again, it'll have to go to court.
0: Like, I think he did it, but I just can't prove it.
1: No, nobody, no crime. Uh. Option three is the ACCC's option, which is a mandatory formal clearance regime, which combines both of the other options. So you have to notify and suspend, and you'll get a formal clearance at the end. But it also adds a net public benefit test. And that
0: means if there's a substantial lessening of competition, there's a second phase where you can argue that there are net public benefits that outweigh those competition issues.
1: That's right. And this is the only option where the ACCC doesn't have to go to court to stop a merger. If the ACCC isn't happy with your merger, then unless you get a different result from the competition tribunal, you won't be able to complete.
0: But could the parties then go to court for a declaration that the deal doesn't lessen
1: competition? That's another open question for the Treasury paper, but the ACCC has said that it supports an ongoing role for the court in those kind of cases. So that's the process. What about those changes to the merger test? So here the Treasury has gone alphabetical and we've got options A, B and C. Oh, are those as easy as 1, 2, 3? Maybe, but that's not really a Taylor Swift lyric. Unless, of course, you mean 1, 2, 3, L, G, B, which is something Swifties at live shows call out in the middle of Delicate. It's a bit like, am I ever going to see your face again or living next door to Alice, but not quite as rude. Oh, well,
0: I'm more of an LFG person myself. I'm with Alex Morgan.
1: You're on the right track there. Really, the most interesting and consequential option here is option B, which is to expand the current competition test to include transactions that entrench, materially increase or materially extend a position of substantial market power.
0: Mm, That's the Emiomiya Possum P test that we talked about earlier this year, isn't it? And will that be in addition to the usual test or more like another merger factor?
1: Well, the proposal is that you'd prohibit mergers that would have the effect of substantial lessening competition, including through MEOPI or And And to me, that says it's not enough to show that you'd entrench or increase market power. You still have to show that that will result in a substantial lessening of competition. But it might be elevated above the other merger factors. It'd be like a super factor. So treasury is seeking
0: submissions up until 19 January. So this could be a nice holiday project. Uh, Do we have any idea which way they're leaning?
1: I do seem to have accepted a few of the ACCC's underlying premises about the way that merger enforcement is viewed internationally right now. And that includes the view that merger enforcement has been too lax over the past few decades, that markets that are more concentrated are more likely to see higher prices, and that mergers may not give rise to efficiencies that pass through to consumers all that often
0: but they do say that the same analysis
1: hasn't necessarily been done in Australia. That's right. And Marcus Betsy from the ACCC, who's been working at Treasury for the competition review, has said that it's not fair to assume that the government will legislate for new merger laws. He said that there are some powerful advocates for merger reform on the task force, but there are also some merger reform sceptics.
0: And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has said that less competition means higher prices and less choice, but also that mergers can drive economic growth and support competition, and most of them don't raise competition issues at
1: all. Yeah, and of course, they're trying to balance the risks of under-enforcement against the risks of over-enforcement, as well as speed and certainty against procedural fairness. So it may be that we get to a more moderate position than the ACCC has been advocating. Time will tell. What else is going on? Well, speaking of the Competition Review Expert Advisory Panel... Wait, what? They're really calling it that? Creep? That isn't a Taylor Swift song either.
0: Well, what's this
1: then? That's clearly an AI creation, like Week in the Drake End. How can you tell? If you listen carefully, too many fingers.
0: Oh, well, I was recently involved in an AI creation that's the first woman to run for the FIFA presidency. Her name is Hope, but anyway, back to creep.
1: So, one of the original panel members, Danielle Wood from the Grattan Institute, has now started her term as chair of the Productivity Commission, and the treasurer has just issued a statement of expectations to the PC for the first time.
0: Does he expect them to undercut the government and ACCC positions on market concentration, like the old chair and acting chair did from time to time?
1: I mean, not in so many words. He does say that number one on the government's productivity agenda is creating a more dynamic, competitive, and resilient economy. No way. And he asks the PC to focus on technological and digital transformation, climate change and the net zero transition, the ageing population and rising demand for care and support services, and global shifts like geopolitical risks and fragmentation.
0: Yeah, and those are all really important, but does it look like maybe the government doesn't want different commissions focusing too much on the same
1: issues, like competition? Look, maybe. But then Danielle Wood will still be on the expert advisory panel, and I do hope that the PC will keep providing an independent voice on all these economic issues.
0: She's done a few interviews recently and talked about the energy transition, the potential for AI to transform the way we produce goods and services, and she's called for a review
1: of the tax system,
0: including the GST, stamp duty, and the High Court's decision
1: on the electric vehicle excise. Yeah, She also spoke on 7.30 recently about productivity in the care sector
2: when we think about the care sector, it's much harder to to think what does a productivity improvement look like? You know, labour is the product. None of us want to be cared Mm -hmm. for by robots. Um, So, the simple fact is that um, productivity gains will be harder to come by in those sectors, Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not there. We'll probably be looking at things that try and raise the quality of care that people receive. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the extent that new technologies might allow um, you know, people to tap into
0: greater connections or um, do things that stem cognitive decline, you know, there
2: are opportunities to improve people's quality of life that I think, um, you know, come from new technologies and also come from setting up policy in that space better.
1: And you know what else is meant to stem cognitive decline? Uh, I would have said cryptic crosswords, but now I'm not so sure. Like the song says, fighting with him was like trying to solve a crossword and realising there's no right answer.
0: Hmm. well, podcasting with him is a bit like that too. What else is
1: happening? Well we now have a new lineup on the High Court, with Justice Stephen Gagler becoming the fourteenth Chief Justice of Australia, and Justice Robert Beach Jones, now the fifty seventh Justice of the Highest Court in the land.
0: The notorious RBJ. And they were both sworn in at ceremonial sittings of the court early in November.
1: Yeah, and we learned there that the new Chief Justice is a fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and owns a twelve hundred year old Tang Dynasty terracotta camel. Well, now that's a specialty pet. Did he get it from pet stock? Guess he must have. And the president of the New South Wales Bar Association, and once a part of the competition team here, Ruth Higgins, SC, reminded him that as a barrister, he used to work on economic regulatory matters, including a case about electricity transmission systems, where an expert witness told him that he thought like an engineer. She said, Your honour approached such matters by tracking the movement of an electron from the moment of precise production to the final moment of use while synthesising that physical analysis with each relevant economic fact and legal consequence along the way. It reflected the way in which your Honours' legal thinking has long been leavened by economics and a desire to understand how things fit together. Do we know what that case was? I think that was in 2003, when Transgrid was trying to connect the New South Wales and South Australian electricity grids, but that was successfully challenged by the operator of the interconnector between Victoria and South Australia. They've actually just dusted off those old plans, and they're working on a new interconnector between the three states to be finished next year.
0: Mm, Better late than never, I guess. And what did we learn about
1: Justice Beach Jones? We learned he's a football fan, though maybe not the kind of football some of us might hope. Do you mean men's netball? Well, that's not how Solicitor General Stephen Donaghy described it. He said, Your honour's drive for excellence is tempered by an innate sense of fairness. See not only in the courtroom, but apparently also on the football pitch. There's some evidence that you're an AFL tragic, which is testament to your tenacity and strength of character, if not to your judgement, since you apparently support Carlton.
0: Are they allowed to roast judges like that? Isn't that contempt of court?
1: I think it's the last time they're allowed to.
0: So, look, the new High Court has made some waves in its first week, hasn't it? By deciding that the government can't keep non-citizens... In indefinite detention when there's no reasonable prospect that they can be resettled in another country?
1: It sure has. So, right after the hearing, it said that at least a majority of the new bench agreed that detainee NZYQ should be released under a writ of habeas corpus and they'd provide reasons later, which was great news for all the detainees who've now been released, though it's made it a bit tough for the government, who now has to decide how to respond to the decision without having seen the actual reasons. But this might reflect a new way of doing things for the new court.
0: Hmm, maybe the Solicitor General shouldn't have sledged him like that. But most of these detainees have been denied visas because of concerns about their character, haven't they? Many of them have been convicted of crimes or credibly charged with them. So there's not a lot of popular upside in looking out for them. But I guess that's why
1: we have a high court. I agree. And actually, a substantial part of the hearing was about the difference between a likelihood and a prospect and what Ruth Higgins called a tripartite distinction and Justice Gleeson called a trilogy. Of a real chance, probable, and more probable than not, which is something that we grapple with all the time in competition law, particularly in mergers. There's no Taylor
0: Swift song about mergers, is there?
1: They tend to be more about demergers. Uh. But there is someone told his white collar crimes to the FBI, which of course is a part of the Department of Justice.
0: Mm, yeah, reminds me of a Zurich hotel I once stayed in. But Matt, you recently spoke to partner Liana Witt about individual liability for those white collar crimes
1: which may have included price fixing or bid rigging. Who knows? Who knows? But before we get to that, I wanted to let any remaining listeners know that we're running a survey now asking for your views about the podcast, which parts you like, what you'd like to see more of, and if you fill it in, you can win some competitive edge swag.
0: And we'll link to the survey in the show notes or keep an eye on your email if you've signed up via our website.
1: That's right. That was a pretty seamless segue, don't you think? Fairly. Anyway, Liana had a lot to say about the agency's increasing focus on individuals in Australia and internationally, and what we can do to stay off those most wanted lists.
0: Let's take a listen.
1: Joining me today is Liana Witt, who's a partner in the Competition Regulation Group and has been involved in a lot of big competition consumer investigations. Liana, welcome to The Competitive Edge.
2: Thanks very much for having me, Matt.
1: Now, we've had a lot of discussion about penalties for contraventions of the competition and consumer law and whether even the maximum penalties that we have of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars are going to be enough to deter these really large companies. But penalties for individuals have also been going up, and these might be less likely to be seen as a cost of doing business. When should individuals who work for a company be worried about competition and consume a lot of penalties?
2: It's a really good question, Matt. And what we're really looking at here is thinking about who within an organization could be at risk. And this is really at that director, senior manager, executive level. Those people who have responsibility for the area in which the conduct occurred and usually have to be involved in the conduct. And the ones most at risk are, of course, the ones that you could perhaps want for a better word, the architect of the conduct. But liability can attach to anyone within an organisation if they're involved in the contravention. And so that would extend to you know having knowledge of the essential facts of the contravention, even if they don't know that those facts taken together would actually be a contravention.
1: So, when would the ACCC think about taking action against individuals as well as against the business? What would they take into account there?
2: What the ACCC would be looking at is, is there a clear individual or individuals that have been engaging in the conduct? How senior are those individuals? And is taking action against those individuals going to be sending a really important and strong message around deterrence? They're the things that would be front of mind for the ACCC when deciding whether to pursue individuals as well as the companies themselves.
1: And we know that in the competition consumer law, there's criminal and civil liability. How does the decision work? Um, which one is going to be pursued in a particular case?
2: In a criminal context, you can see the ACCC performing the, the role almost of the police in a Traditional criminal matter in the sense that they're the investigating body, they look at all of the evidence, they form a view, they prepare a brief, but then that brief of evidence will go to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. And it's for the CDPP in criminal matters to determine whether to prosecute criminally, and that is an independent decision of the CDPP. For civil matters though, it's the ACCC. So it's the ACCC who has that decision around whether to prosecute And they, of course, have the decision as to when to refer matters to the CDPP. But there is a MOU between the ACCC and CDPP as to when that will rise and how that will work. And essentially, the ACCC will be referring matters to the CDPP where they consider that those matters involve serious cartel conduct.
1: So, what are the current penalties for individuals?
2: So, the current civil penalties for individuals. If we just take for a moment the maximum penalties that can be imposed, they are currently $2.5 million per contravention. And that recently increased since November last year. The previous maximum was half a million dollars. Now, on the criminal side, for criminal contraventions, and here we're talking about cartel conduct, the the maximum penalty is set by reference to penalty units, and that's 2,000 penalty units at the moment. And those units are indexed every couple of years. And at the moment, that's $626,000. But of course, on the criminal side, it's not just penalties. There's also the prospect of imprisonment. And the maximum is 10 years in jail.
1: And what will the court take into account when it determines what the appropriate level of penalty is, considering those maximums?
2: So, when a court looks at what is an appropriate penalty or fine, If we just take the criminal jurisdiction for a moment, there's a number of objective matters and subjective matters that a court will take into account in sentencing an individual. On the objective side, it's the objective nature and seriousness of the conduct. So things like, was the conduct deliberate, covert or reckless? Was it isolated conduct or was it systemic and lengthy what is the impact or consequence of that conduct on the market or other third parties, and the extent of any profit or benefit derived from the conduct. But when you're talking about an individual, the court will also look at the circumstances specific to the offender. And so things like prior convictions, good character, Has the individual expressed contrition or shown contrition? And things like hardship to family independence are all factors that a court will take into account in sentencing in the criminal jurisdiction.
1: What are the main differences between the criminal and the civil jurisdictions?
2: In a civil jurisdiction, the overriding principle that guides a court in determining penalty both companies and individuals is deterrence. And that encompasses both specific deterrence, so deterring the specific entity or individual that's been involved in that conduct from engaging in that conduct again, but also general deterrence. So how does this generally deter others from engaging in this conduct? So that is a key difference between civil and criminal in the sense that civil penalties are tied to deterrence, but the criminal penalties are not so tied to deterrence. However, a lot of the factors that sit under that, that a court will take into account, are not too dissimilar across the civil and criminal jurisdiction. They might have different nuances and emphasis, but by and large, there's quite a lot of commonality in the factors that the courts will take into account across the jurisdictions. I think on the criminal side, though, where there is some difference is there's more a focus on the need to ensure adequate punishment, which I think is different to deterrence. And there is a focus, particularly obviously for individuals, on the prospects of rehabilitation of that individual as well. So I think there, if I would call out some key differences, they would be it.
1: So we've got civil penalties, criminal fines, and the potential for incarceration. What other kind of remedies can apply to individuals for breaches?
2: Look, there's a number of other Remedies that a court can impose on an individual. I think the key ones that would be really front of mind for an individual facing a prosecution would be ones like disqualification or banning orders, prohibiting an executive um, from managing corporations for a period of you know five, seven, whatever it might be years. So I think that's a key remedy that can be imposed on an individual. There's things like educative notices there's potential composition to individuals, there's obviously orders around contribution to the ACCC's costs that an individual might be up for. So there's a number of things in addition to obviously fines and incarceration.
1: And when it comes to those fines and penalties, is the individual on the hook for all of that or can they get some recovery or compensation from the business they work for?
2: There is a prohibition in in the act against companies indemnifying officers and their employees for their defense costs or for their liability to pay a civil penalty if they are ultimately found liable for the conduct. So, if you have an individual that is prosecuted, but that prosecution isn't successful, no question arises. But where that individual is found liable, then the company is prohibited from indemnifying.
1: And they may have an insurance policy that might cover them. Is that going to help them out?
2: This is a really interesting question at the moment, Matt. There's no prohibition in the Act around taking out insurance or companies taking out Insurance, so DNO insurance with a arm's length third party insurer to provide coverage for defense costs or for civil penalties. Interestingly, there is in the Corporations Act some specific prohibitions on taking out insurance for specific types of conduct, but we don't have that in the Competition and Consumer Act currently. So up until recently, the position was that that could provide coverage. Now, there has been a recent decision of Justice O'Brien in the ACCC and Blue Scope matter in relation to the individual concerned in that case, where the court on the ACCC's application made a non-indemnification order. And the effect of that was that it would prevent any insurance coming in to cover the penalty that the court imposed on that individual and that he would have to pay that penalty personally. And so I think that's a really interesting decision and could have quite significant ramifications for companies and their executives more generally, if while there's no prohibition in the Act, if courts are going to be making those non-identification orders, then those insurance policies aren't going to be able to come in and provide that coverage. I understand that that decision has been appealed and so it'll be really interesting to see where things land in relation to that issue.
1: What sort of level of penalties have the courts imposed on individuals so far in Australia?
2: I think it's about 12 million in total. If you adjust for inflation, we might be at about 17.5 million. That's been imposed on around 250 individuals to date on my calculations. But I think some of the interesting ones that have happened over the years, many people will recall the Visi cardboard box cartel matter. And in that case, the CEO was penalized 1.5 million. And that was back in 2007. So, some time ago. And the general manager in that case was penalised half a million dollars. And most recently in the ACCC and Blue Scope matter, the individual in that case who was a general manager was penalised in total half a million dollars. And that was in respect of eight separate attempts to induce a cartel contravention.
1: And have there been any criminal penalties imposed on individuals in Australia so far?
2: There's been a couple of instances now where beginning last year, we had two cases where individuals were convicted and custodial sentences were imposed on those individuals. There was the Vena money transfer cartel matter where there were four individuals sentenced to varying custodial sentences. All of those, however, were suspended. So none of those individuals actually served jail time in that case. And then we had the accolades of Australia matter where an export manager was fined and also sentenced to 32 months, but to be served as an intensive correction order in the community. So again, no actual jail time. But we have a number of other cases that are currently before the courts awaiting sentencing involving both companies and individuals. So I certainly expect that we'll be seeing some additional custodial sentences being imposed in the near future.
1: So, you'd think it's only a matter of time before there's some real jail time served.
2: Look, I think that's right, Matt. And really, the threat of a custodial sentence is really the strongest deterrence sort of uh, stick, I think, that can be wielded. So, I, I think that's right.
1: And even if you have a suspended sentence, there are still consequences. You still have a criminal conviction.
2: Precisely. And that could have more significant ramifications more generally in terms of you know, if you have a criminal conviction, there might be circumstances, you know, where you need to disclose that or can you travel to certain countries and things like that. So, so having a criminal conviction could have quite significant ramifications for an individual moving forward in their life.
1: And some other countries have imposed criminal liability uh, on cartel conduct in particular for a lot longer than we have. Have we seen significant sentences of, of time served in those jurisdictions?
2: Yeah, so while there's a lot of countries that still only impose civil liability, as you said, Matt, there's a number of countries that do have criminal liability for cartel conduct, US, Canada, the UK, Germany, Greece, South Korea, and a number of others. The US is a really good one to call out because they've had criminal liability for a long time. I think it was in the 1970s, it changed from a misdemeanor to a felony. But their maximum is a fine of US $1 million or 10 years imprisonment. And they have a long history and trend of securing custodial sentences against individuals. I think there's 119 individuals that have been charged since 2004 in the US. And the average prison sentence was about eight months in the 1990s, 20 months in the 2000s, and we're looking at 18 months in 2010 and 15 months in the 2020s. So you can see a clear trend in the US, who's had criminal liability for a lot longer than in Australia, of sentences against individuals increasing. And unlike Australia, those individuals have been serving jail time.
1: Yeah, pretty substantial jail time as well.
2: Yes, very we're only at the infancy in terms of criminal liability and prosecutions in Australia. But I think the US example gives us an insight on where things will go in Australia as as we move forward.
1: So, to avoid being part of that trend, uh, what should individuals in a company and also the lawyers advising them keep in mind?
2: Look, it's incumbent on the companies and the lawyers advising those companies to ensure that their employees at all levels of the organisation, but most importantly from the top down, are aware of their responsibilities and have a good grasp of the key issues and prohibitions in the Act. Now, the Act is technical and no one expects a layperson to understand the intricacies of competition laws, but as having a general good understanding of where, The line is between what's permissible and what's not, but also not just engaging in conduct that might get you close to that line, but putting in place good compliance processes that work in practice and that are reinforced throughout the organisation. I think those things are absolutely important and a culture of compliance is critical and it's also something that courts will take into account. When they're looking at imposing penalties on companies, did they have a culture of compliance? Did they try and do the right thing? Did they have the right processes, training, procedures in place to help arm their employees to understand what their rights and responsibilities are? If you're in a industry where there is a need to be engaging with your competitors, for example, industry associations, those kind of things, they provide an opportunity for Inadvertent problematic conduct. And so, putting in place appropriate measures to ensure that employees understand what they can and can't do in those environments are really important. So, I think there are certainly industries where there can be greater risk because there may be a need to or a desire to legitimately have interactions with competitors, for example, on issues facing a particular industry. But those, I guess, situations do come with greater risk under competition laws. So it's really about how can I ensure that I minimize risk? How can I arm those people involved in those situations with what they need to know and put in place safeguards to ensure you know people don't get themselves into, into trouble or the company?
1: And if uh, an officer or an employee or a lawyer comes across something that doesn't seem right, what should they do about it?
2: Look, obviously raising it with an in-house lawyer or or an external lawyer straight away. I think if there's any concerns, it's always the best thing to do, not to leave something. And it may be that there's no issue. But if there's potentially an issue, is there a way to address it? How can we ensure that the conduct is stopped or that there needs to be an additional safeguard put in place to minimise risk? So the best thing to do is tell someone about it, your lawyer.
1: So is there a sense that the Asia Plus C is focusing more on individual liability at the moment?
2: Look, that's certainly my sense. I do think that over the years, there's been an increasing focus on individual liability, not just on the company. And the ACCC has certainly been taking cases, and I think increasingly so, against both companies and and individuals concerned. And I don't see that trend abating. I think it's only going to continue. And I think for the very reason that while... A company can be penalised, an individual can be imprisoned, and I think it really comes back to that is the ultimate tool that can be used to achieve deterrence.
0: What a great interview. You can understand that even a huge fine might be absorbed by a really big company, but nobody wants to go to jail.
1: That's right. and I don't know if you saw that article in The New Yorker called Listening to Taylor Swift in Prison by Joe Garcia.
0: That's the guy who's been incarcerated in California since 2009, but has stayed connected to the outside world through the music
1: of Taylor Swift. That's right. It's really worth a read. But obviously, it's even better not to go to prison or to get a criminal conviction, even if it's suspended or served in the community. And even
0: if it's just a fine or a civil penalty, that's going to hurt if your company can't indemnify you
1: or if your insurance won't cover it. Yeah, and you can see how that could have even more of a deterrent effect than raising the triple threat corporate penalties yet again. Indeed. Now, before we go, what can you see in the mirror ball? There's some interesting reporting from MLEX about what looks like a drop-off in new AC court actions under the competition law. So we've had a fair few recent judgments, but no new cases filed since the action against Swift Networks, no relation, for rigging the tenders to show Hollywood movies to minors in the Pilbara. And that was back in February. There have also been some big consumer law cases like Qantas for its
0: cancelled flights and Secure Parking for its Secure Spot that didn't secure a spot.
1: Who could forget that one? And of course, there's always a lot of investigations going on, and there could be some new competition law cases dropping unexpectedly at any time, like the Folklore and Evermore albums did in 2020.
0: Are we seeing a recalibration at the ACCC as the old matters play through and the priorities of the new chair and the new commissioners start to kick in?
1: We may be. I mean, we've seen that Chair Gina Gottlieb has a real focus on what's best for consumers, and the consumer law cases are not surprisingly most clearly and directly about that. On the other hand, the consumer impact of competition law cases can be a bit more complicated, even when there might be a clear contravention.
0: And maybe for some
1: of these cases, they're waiting for ex ante powers, especially in digital platforms. Yeah, or at least waiting to see if they're likely to get those new powers. But I think they will still want to bring a substantial competition law case pretty soon and one with a strong consumer flavour, you'd expect. And if I can look in the mirror ball for a moment,
0: around the time this episode releases, there's a GCR live event on competition enforcement in Australia, co-chaired by our own Elizabeth Avery. And they're sure to talk about all of this stuff.
1: And we'll be sure to report back next time, including on whether Justice Wigney finally acknowledges our cryptic crossword. The really big matters. Remember, you can find
0: relevant links in our show notes or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au.
1: And we've got some great guests still to come, including a deep dive on the merger process changes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, tell your friends, and don't forget that survey for the chance to win some exclusive merchandise.
0: Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.